0: Welcome, John Chavez. How are you today, brother?
1: Pretty good, man. And just, uh, I'm just looking forward to our chat. Uh, I know uh, my producer, Ben, linked us up and you've been doing great work for many years and I'm just getting started in the space in terms of the whole film thing. So mm. uh, I think we have a lot to talk about.
0: 100%. So you are behind the film DMT Quest. I was introduced to it through Ben, uh, Ben Stewart, who was the producer who you're referring to. and. I worked with him um, on the release of Psychedelica when it first came out. Uh, I was helping him get the word out through the social media platforms. And I had also been a longtime fan of his first film, Chimatica. Um, so that's how I know him. And I did a recent uh, I recently did a podcast with him as well, which was great. And we talked about everything under the sun as far as psychedelics and spirituality and stuff. But um, let me ask, you know, what got you interested in this space and when did your journey begin um, with the whole psychedelic plant medicine aspect that you're exploring right now?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously the title of the film is called DMT Quest. So a lot of people have uh, this uh, perception that, uh, you know, I'm diving into the psychedelic spate of exogenous uh, plant medicine and things of that nature. But what actually got me started on on this uh, project was i had a mystical experience in 2013 uh non-exogenous substance induced so it just took place rather spontaneously and uh, it opened my eyes to the possibilities of the human potential and i guess some of the the mysteries behind the human experience uh, it it really opened me up because i had Prior to that, I've been very closed. I've been, I guess you can consider me a, to have been an atheist. I mean, I, I grew up uh, Catholic or Christian and, you know, just the, the church thing for my parents. But I never really believed because there was nothing that showed me any proof that any of the mysticism within uh, the Bible or anything of that nature was true. So I essentially closed off for most of my life. And um, in 2013, I had a, a spiritual awakening of sorts. Uh It was induced by a massive gastrointestinal purge uh, that led me to have, uh, you know, I I speak to people in the spiritual space and, you know, they like to label it as a Kundalini awakening or or something of that sort, which uh, I wasn't really familiar with the term Mm -hmm. back then. And I really don't know what it means even now, but uh, it seems as though some sort of uh, electrical force uh, rising up the spine. And that's exactly the experience that I had was... I had a it was almost like a rod of electricity going from my tailbone up to my head and and even out, it felt like it expanded out of my body Uh, I felt a disturbance by uh, Mm -hmm. electrical appliances and electrical wires I could feel the field their fields disrupting me my body uh, at a distance which was very strange because I didn't even know that was possible uh, before Mm -hmm. and um, basically what happened is that I would say that my uh, my intent or my visualization started to manifest in strange ways. Uh, just for an example, um, after my gastrointestinal purge and, and that whole electric rod of my spinal cord, uh, I don't know, I, one of those nights following it, I got the intuition to, to uh, warm my feet because at night my feet tend to get cold. And I just got the intuition to go ahead and Uh, warm my right foot just via intent, via visualization. Uh, Mind you, throughout this time, I'd felt Mm -hmm. like the electrical buzz throughout my body, feeling very different, feeling connected with a force greater than myself, feeling a sense of mysticism. And uh, within basically a second, uh, I felt that my right foot got uh, extremely warm uh, from the inside. And then I grabbed it from the outside and it felt uh, very warm to my hand. Uh, while the left foot still f- uh, felt cold. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I w- went ahead and did the same thing with the left foot and the left foot got warm instantly. And at that point I was like, wow, this is very strange how it seems as though my intent or my visualization can uh, affect my body in a way that mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do so before. And uh, mm-hmm. the next day I, I decided, uh, I had an intuition. I don't know why, but... Um, I had an intuition to go ahead and, and use those same visualizations, but to see, just to see if I could, uh, affect the, something outside of my body. So I was sitting at the dinner table with my girlfriend at the time and, uh, I didn't tell her what I was going to do. We were kind of just, this was after dinner. We weren't in the middle of eating or anything, but uh, I just decided to do a mm-hmm. quick visualization into uh, her head. And I just wanted to see if there would be any sort of uh, reaction. Um, so basically, I just envisioned sort of electrical, I guess, uh, like a bolt of electricity going from my head to her head. And as the moment that the visualization mm. was very vivid, uh, her head jolted back and she just kind of like was like, what was that? And at that moment, it kind of opened us mm-hmm. to the possibility, or not the possibility, but the reality that... Uh, This visualization that was uh, affecting my body wasn't completely nervous system uh, based. It was something that uh, could extend through like outside of the body. And then at that point, uh, it just let me down the intuition because I'd never been interested in mysticism at all before or energy or anything at all in that realm. And uh, I just decided to see if maybe uh, telepathic communication, maybe there was something to telepathic communication uh, uh, coinciding with those mechanisms of visualization. And, uh, you know, so we just went ahead and tried it. uh, Very straightforward, just visualizing an image, anything that uh, I kind of desired to go ahead and image. And for whatever reason, she was able to get it correct like five times in a row. And at that point, uh, it just was like, wow, wow. Um, is this, uh, it felt like I was in a, a realm of magic, you know, to be quite honest. And uh, yeah. I felt that I, I, my, my biggest question at the time was whether I was the only person in the world to have ever experienced this. And the funny thing is that the deeper right. I went into the research, I started to realize that uh, this stuff has been uh, researched. Uh, quite extensively for about a hundred years, probably much more, but in, just in terms of modern science and trying to use uh, objective uh, measurements of these sort of phenomena, uh, a lot of research has been going on, which really surprised me because, you know, I've been very kind of naive about that entire field. So basically, you know, how this all mm. in with the uh, DMT is, uh, you know, I try to explain my, these mystical experiences and, things of that nature to, to uh, people. And I was at my sister's wedding and uh, I had my cousin, you know, I was trying to explain sort of this experience to my cousin. He's like, you know, you should look up DMT. And uh, I had never heard of DMT <laughs> up until that time. It was 2013. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I looked it up. I saw Rick Strassman, DMT, the spirit molecule. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. We have been to have this thing called the spirit molecule within, you know, potentially within our bodies and uh, it's labeled as the spirit molecule so maybe it has something to do with the spiritual or mystical experiences I thought that you know it was sort of a natural connection there so I read his book and um, I just started diving down the rabbit hole of uh, the potentiality of this endogenous molecule possibly being upregulated during people's sort of uh, you know mystical experiences and Sometimes they're hallucinatory by nature because I've spoken with people that have had, quote unquote, uh, kundalini experiences that have had more um, like visionary experiences, something that you could sort of compare to things right. like psychedelics. But my experience was more, right. I've come to like term it um, willed hallucinations, consciously willed hallucinations, which to me is a uh, equivalent to a visualization uh, coming to life, affecting objective right. reality in a measurable fashion. And uh, I think they're all intertwined. I think those conversations are are very much intertwined in terms of, you know, whatever we deem to be hallucinatory activity and things like mental imagery and visualization during altered states. So that's just like a brief kind of gist of, right. of what led me down this path of of developing. You know, I ended up writing two books on the subject, right. Questions for the Lion Tamar one and two. Uh, just diving into the biomechanics of mm-hmm. uh, altered states and tying it in with uh, electrophysiology and and obviously the, the chemical action going on mm-hmm. there. And, uh, you know, just right. went ahead and... Um, that, that's basically the foundation for which we went ahead and did the film.
0: Amazing. Super interesting, for sure. Um, a couple of people that I know speak well on the spontaneous um, kundalini awakening is Gopi Krishna and also Jiddu Murti, which both oddly have the, the, the name Krishna in, in their name, which is pretty interesting. I guess it could be that they're from uh, India. Um, but I had a very similar experience. Mine actually was um, in the days after a very powerful psilocybin mushroom ceremony where we didn't really know what we were getting into and it went uh, way further than we ever thought was possible. Um, It was off about three and a half grams of pretty much hydro shrooms. They were like extremely thick, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Stems. And we, we, yeah, we kind of thought we were just going to have like a nice time and it was going to be chill and, we were going to feel vibey, maybe kind of like we thought it'd be a little bit more of like an amplification of, of what cannabis does, um, but it really blew us out of the water. And in the days after that, I could sit down and just kind of close my eyes. And within two or three minutes, uh, I was more or less back in that exact place of uh, an extremely altered state of consciousness where there was light bursting from within and um, and it, it, I would say that it was more or less my third eye being active. Um, I could see golden light. Just closing my eyes, I'm not on anything anymore. I'm not. I'm not on psilocybin anymore. I'm not on cannabis anymore. I'm just sitting in my room, and I'm like, why do I feel the need to want to meditate? I've never felt the need to want to meditate before. But after this experience, there was such like a download, and I was so intrigued by. The, the places that we were able to go, uh, these time loops, like this the sense that we were on an alien planet, and I was seeing the planet almost for the first time, because it is an alien planet. We just think that because we're humans, we're not aliens, but I very much saw that we are the aliens. I don't know. It was kind of a funny experience, like getting to see what humans are from the cosmic perspective. Um, and anyway... Days after this experience, I was sitting down having these deep meditation, deep uh, enlightenment. Literally, that's uh, that's what enlightenment means, light from within. I was experiencing light from within, and I would Google, you know, what is going on with me? This is brand new to me. I had no, no idea this was possible, and the term that kept coming up over and over and over again was kundalini, just like what you're saying. So I learned about Kundalini yoga as a way to harness this energy. and I did a little Kundalini yoga. and then I smoked a little bit of cannabis right after doing maybe thirty or 45 minutes of Kundalini yoga. But I, I did, you know, I did the exercises as as prescribed, and then I smoked some cannabis. and lo and behold, it was I was in a spiritual dimension again. So, I was extremely intrigued as to what is kundalini, where does it originate. That's how I found the work of Gopi Krishna and Jiddu Krishnamurti. And I really do believe that there is this energy within all of us that we can activate, whether it be on purpose or accidentally. And it could happen, you know, just by by pure divine grace. It could happen by you getting into like a near-death experience or 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 going through some type of immense trauma and it kind of coming up the spine this this energy um, which for people who are familiar with like terms like chakras and um, and these types of things it, it it's this energy that, more or less activates all of the subtle energy centers of the body and puts you into a heightened state of awareness of what you are and what life is and what, what kind of a miracle it is to be a human and to be incarnate. It really is truly the rarest thing in the cosmos. Like it seems like it's such a gift, you know what I mean? It is such a overwhelming, um, miracle, that we're here alive and to me that completely erased my depression because before that I was like why am I here I was so ungrateful I was so just taking everything for granted and then when this experience happened I was like whoa like I feel so grateful just to be here I have no idea why I was in that stuck state before and it completely opened me up to this world of research too where I was like kind of in this I was so inspired by what was happening to me that I would just do this research endlessly and I was coming across all of the terms and and all of the molecules that were able to get you into states like this. And um, more or less, it's, it's very much represented, it's represented very well by the artwork of Alex Gray. So I had been already a fan of Alex Gray previous to this, which was a, a funny thing because it was almost like my intuition like letting me know I was bound to experience this state um, because I was looking at his artwork and I was like, this is the most beautiful artwork I'd ever seen. But mind you, I had no context as to what that experience was or how to achieve that experience. And then later on, once I had it, it made total sense. It was like something clicked into place, like a light bulb went off. And I was like, oh, that's where he's coming from. That's the experience he's having. So, kundalini, I do believe, is like this energy that exists within every person that you can activate. Um, it lives at the base of the spine and and through certain exercises or even just just by, you know, like I said earlier, pure divine grace. It can be activated or it could be a trauma or near-death near experience that activates it, but it gives you a glimpse of, of the many dimensions that exist around us. And that is just such a different worldview than what we come up believing in America. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's just not tied in with anything that we deem to be scientific. So we automatically dismiss it. And all these conversations about mystical experiences, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you're getting into religion. And it's like, no, we're getting actually deeper into altered states of biology. I mean, that's the way Mm -hmm. I look at it, that, um, you know, there's magic in the world that's probably really difficult to measure, but there are a lot of physiological changes that do take place during these altered states that is measurable, that could potentially tie, uh, present a correlate to these experiences. And most importantly, uh, open up the conversation for people to have, right. With people that are engineers or scientists, um, that's just what I've seen, especially being out in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, people are open to the discussion of DMT. They're not open to the discussion of religion mm-hmm. or necessarily mysticism that doesn't have some sort of quantification in terms of the DMT discussion, but they are very interested in uh, the mystical experiences regarding the whole DMT aspect. So the fact that you know we have endogenous DMT, endogenous 5-MeO, I think it provides a powerful catalyst mm-hmm. Uh, for people from all walks of life to share their experiences. And I think that's important because it allows us to develop a framework for uh, real reality, the greater reality, right? I mean, we have, you know, our 3D senses and how we deem reality to be. But, you know, if everybody were to be comfortable to share maybe their, uh, their mystical experiences or their insights, then us as a collective, as humans, could start to develop a more comprehensive framework for, uh, you know, maybe the outliers of, of perception and, and things of that nature.
0: 100%, 100%. Um, I also wanted to speak on, as you said, telepathy, um, and these type of things, I think if I'm not mistaken, the first name for DMT was like telepathine because, but before they kind of saw the molecule and gave it a name and that type of thing like th- there was this hunch and you know, don't quote me on this because I'm not exactly quoting the science uh, but um, or the article that maybe this originated from but there was there was uh, an experience people were having with these molecules and telepathy which is really hard to describe. But more or less, it is like if two people take a molecule, let's just say DMT, they might have a very similar experience in the exact same space, which that means if this is just a quote-unquote hallucination, meaning your mind coming up with funny things, you're not going to see the same thing as the guy sitting next to you. Like his mind is going to be in a completely like randomized hallucination, whereas you're going to be in your own randomized hallucination. Why then is it that a lot of times people are seeing and experiencing very similar things, if not the exact same thing um, in these states of consciousness? And not only that, there's also this like ability to feel each other's thoughts. Like, why did you mention that? I was literally just thinking that. Like, as soon as that thought crossed my mind, you said it. And it's like you get kind of like ethereally wired into each other's minds where you can communicate in a deeper way. And I know a lot of people that are like psychonaut brothers who know very well that when they enter this space that they're going to mind meld and they're going to be in a space together to be able to explore together things that both of their minds are able to perceive at the same time. And that's a really interesting topic. Have you uh, experienced this much or researched this much about how people can have literally shared visions?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I've gotten so many emails cause uh, you know, I was, I started the blog in 2014 or 2015. So I've gotten many emails from like people that are engineers and like, you know, we did some LSD with a group of friends and, we all could have swore with that we were in each other's minds. And that's why I started reading the blog, because you go into the mechanics of, or the proposed mechanics for these shared experiences. From what I uh, understand, uh, telepathine was the term used for harm- harming, harmin, which is a mm-hmm. compound, it's a monamine oxidase inhibitory compound in uh, ayahuasca. And from what wow. I, from what I recall, it was the term "telepathine" was used in South America to describe the 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 overall compound because people were having telepathic experiences. But harmine was also being studied in the UK by different researchers, and they used different terms to uh, describe that molecule. And then over time, <clears throat> mm-hmm. UK term became more prominent into harmine and what it is. And then they dropped the telepathine from it. But yeah, from what I understand, it's not Got necessarily. It. Uh, it's, I think it comes from the B. cappy plant that uh, that Harman, uh compound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean the 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 history is interesting. True. Uh, even when you go back to the origination of the EEG device, right? So the device that measures uh, changes mm-hmm. in the microelectric currents of the scalp, that uh, you know changes in the current. Uh, coincide with changes in consciousness altered states or or just circadian rhythms as a whole and the reason why that device was developed in the 1920s was to uh, have an objective measurement of telepathy by Hans Berger so Berger had a very mystical experience in which he had distant communication with his sister uh, during I think it was almost like a not a near-death experience but some sort of physical traumatic emotional experience and he, he experienced some sort of distant communication, and he became obsessed with uh, developing a device to measure that. And funny enough, neuroscientists to this day still use the EEG device, but a lot of them don't know the history behind it.
0: Wow! Right. Right. 100%. I mean, really, yeah, we do enter into the realm of the mystic when we start talking about this, but what is there, like, what other way is there to explain the, the very real experiences that people seem to have in these altered states of consciousness of witnessing the same things at the same time um, or having shared visions um, Then that these compounds literally turn off a part of our brain that is a filtration device that keeps us kind of from perceiving these things that are out there and that are real and they do exist in the field of reality. It's just that it's not really like beneficial to our typical survivalism state that we exist in, which is, you know, we got to eat, we got to provide shelter, we got to have sex, we got to have kids, we got to raise families. We're just like ants in an ant mound. Um, As an animal uh, living this human life, in, until you get this experience, and I think some people's minds are maybe more susceptible or maybe wired from birth, or maybe it's just in their karma to uh, be predisposed to these states, whereas other people, um, they aren't. And I, I, for one, don't really know that I was predisposed to these states before the psychedelic experience. But after this psychedelic experience, through cultivating my inner energy through meditation, yoga, diet, breathwork, mantra, all the kind of modalities that exist to bring you into a more peaceful state of mind, uh, I was able to then tap into these higher levels of consciousness without any medicines. Um, But not only that, things that previously didn't tap me into these states of consciousness did, like cannabis, for example. Like for some people, cannabis is just like, oh, I'm hungry. Like what's on the TV is a little more entertaining. Like the music's a little more clear and pretty. But for me, after these states, I was actually having like spiritual type visions, um, deep states of consciousness where I could see my life's purpose and um, kind of these deep understandings that really no one can tell you no not a single human alive can tell you you have to experience it and once you've experienced it you have the knowledge that's literally knowledge is like the knowing the direct knowing and without the direct knowing all this stuff is just like you know, hearsay, or it's woo-woo, or people don't—they think you're imagining it, or you're crazy, or you have a mental illness, or like all these things. But yet, we—if you really look at it and realize is that the people who shaped this world were informed by these experiences, even Steve Jobs, the guy I'm doing this this whole thing on his MacBook right here the, he he was informed by the direct knowing. Of altered states of consciousness and um people that brought every wisdom tradition in the world you know astrology um healing plant medicines uh religion meditation every like wisdom tradition that we know of is informed by these experiences and those uh traditions are are like the biggest thought systems that exist even even christianity and stuff like even though modern day christianity is so far removed from the actual teachings of jesus (laughs) um jesus himself was a seer he was someone who had these states uh under his belt you know what i mean and i think that they are really like the the kind of mystery key that can show us where we come from and it's the the one of the only things that can that can deliver that message because as you said growing up you know you didn't really fall you didn't really believe in in the things that were being told to you and, and i was very much the same like people would tell me oh god is everywhere And I'm like, well, why don't I see him if he's everywhere? Like, I would have seen him by now if he's everywhere. Why doesn't he talk to me? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? When I pray, I don't hear a voice. So how am I to believe this? Um, Lo and behold, it was because I was in my small mind. Um, And I didn't know that there was a difference between small and large mind. I just thought we are, what we see is everything and as much like, uh, perception as I'm currently holding is as much perception as I'll ever hold. But I had no idea that you can really <laughs> broaden your perception through all these modalities, all these medicines, um, all these ways to show you these deeper things. And when you unlock to those, uh, experiences, these synchronicities seem to unfold around you at all times and give you almost like a breadcrumb trail of where to go for your highest purpose. And for you, it sounds like maybe the purpose that you were being delivered to was to create these films to then share the information with others. Is that accurate?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that it's spot on. I just, uh, you know, I've had this, this vision for about five years now. You could even look back and see, uh, You know, Wim Hof was interviewed by Nadia Aguilar of Functional Patterns, I think, in 2016. And he mentioned about the DMT Mm. documentary working with me and Rick Strassman back then. So, Mm -hmm. But it took uh, time for me to go ahead and build a foundation and a framework. So I hadn't even written the books then. And, um, you know, you have to be patient and you have to stay the course. That's what I learned throughout this entire process. And, you know, something that I have to continue doing is just, uh, you know, be patient and just continue to cultivate your mind and, you know, pick up the details as they go along, but not get stuck in the details at the same time, which can be challenging. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I just, uh, I feel as though there's going to be many films that we're going to be developing that go, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily deeper into the science, but presenting um, interesting aspects of our physiology that seem to be rather consistent in these super normal states of being not just in perception but also from a, a functional aspect a tangible aspect that a 3d society can kind of sink their teeth into which i feel is important um i'd like to combine those sorts of conversations of, of visionary experiences and and high functionality as well i think they're important
0: absolutely so Not too long after this kundalini awakening that you had and you heard of DMT, uh, how how long was it after hearing of DMT that it found you and you were able to partake in a ceremony? And was that the first psychedelic um, that that came into your uh, life uh, or was there others you explored as well?
1: No, uh, actually, let me see this. The first one that I experienced with uh, was ayahuasca because mm-hmm. I'm trying to... Oh, I actually had a, I had a friend who was involved in past life aggression, hypnosis, things of that nature, and she was able to uh, recommend somebody who had ayahuasca in the area, and I tried that. Basically, what I wanted to do was to compare... Uh, things like ayahuasca and DMT to the kundalini awakening, just to see if there was overlap in terms of the feeling or changes in perception Mm -hmm. or whatever. So ayahuasca was first, DMT was second and they were both interesting experiences, but they weren't, and there was overlap in terms of maybe some sort of uh, somatic feelings like physical feelings in the body of, I guess, increased electricity or deep sedation Uh, almost like a numbness in the body that uh, I had felt uh, during the Kundalini awakening experience, which lasted for months, by the way, it wasn't just like it lasted a day or two, it lasted for months. So it allowed me to kind of navigate Mm -hmm. with that experience a lot. So yeah, I mean, I I tried the exogenous things only a few times and uh, I think that they serve their purpose and they are very uh, important compounds for the future of medicine and, mental health, and even physical health. I think that especially ayahuasca, when it comes to uh, physical health, I think that there's a lot of potential there, even in varying dosages, not necessarily the full breakthrough dose, but even uh, lesser doses that are are more consistent. I think that there's a lot of potential, but uh, it led me to understand that I was going to have to take a, a different route in terms of presenting it to the world, but it was good that I had those experiences. So I have some sort of frame of reference, you know,
0: Absolutely. That's really interesting to me because I've always kind of wanted to speak to someone who had a Kundalini awakening without the aid of any medicines. As I said, for me, it was the psilocybin um, mushroom ceremony that unlocked this, like um, the possibility within me for it to, to unfold, I think. Um, previous to that, I just had no reference and I had no way of perceiving that that was possible. But after the psilocybin experience, my mind was open to possibility. I was like, okay, well, what can happen here? So let me try these things. Let me try meditation, let me try Kundalini yoga, and then be able to receive the very tangible experience that they provide. Um, so now that you know, we're, we're talking, and it's very cool that this is what happened to you. Can you explain the type of experiences after this initial awakening that you could tell that there was still something unfolding within you? What type of things were going on with you daily um, and the type of sensations you would have and the type of insights that you were gaining from this um, Kundalini awakening?
1: Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, it was a uh, euphoria for for many weeks, a deep euphoria, not just like, yeah, I'm feeling good and happy. It was like, whoa, I felt like um, I didn't know that you could feel that good uh, emotionally. Mm-hmm. And at that time, even spiritually, I didn't even know that there was a thing as a spirit or a spiritual feeling. honestly felt connected to the force of, you know, God or whatever you want to term it. I didn't. I didn't mm-hmm. see God. He didn't talk to me, but I felt it. And that's the only way I could describe it. It's very strange, right? Uh, because I, I, I describe the experience of electricity, like strong electricity flowing through my body, almost like I got plugged into a wall socket. Yep. And I can... <laughs> I, I assume that maybe other people can have sensitivity to electromagnetism but it doesn't necessarily automatically coincide with the feeling of connectivity to a greater force but that's the only thing that I can describe within myself and it almost felt like right. instead of just being air like around us it almost felt like there was like a slight sort of density in the in the air yeah. where it was like this isn't just air this is this is almost like a fish in water, right? They don't know that they're in water, but there's something around them that 100%. allows you to transfer stuff to to others or what have you. And um, yeah, I mean, I it's funny because other people describe the Kundalini uh, awakening or experience in very visionary experiences, or they start to you know have uh, you know auditory experiences. And I didn't have that. I had a very very much a physical 3D experience as much as you can stay in the 3D um, of intent affecting Mm -hmm. objective reality. Like, uh, you know, I've been able to Mm -hmm. teach people telepathy, multiple people telepathy rather easily. And that's what was very intriguing to me was like, wow, it's so easy to teach people this, especially when they understand how to, uh, get themselves into altered states of consciousness, whether it be breathwork or hypnosis or visualization or meditation. Uh, things like telepathy come come about very easy. All you have to do is try, right? And and follow the directions. And mm-hmm. there's no even mysticism about any of it. Even though it's obviously a very mystical, it would be deemed as a mystical ability. Um, as for I guess the the rest of the sensations that I felt during my awakening, I would say that I felt a much greater affinity for sunlight. It, that was very strange. I almost felt like mm. uh, um, distinct, uh, you, even greater euphoria as soon as the sun hit me. Uh, I felt almost like a, a buzzing sensation mm-hmm. around my head. Um, ever since my awakening, mm-hmm. I felt almost as though uh, uh, behind my sinus, there's uh, some sort of pleasurable pressure that takes place every time Every time I take a, a breath through my nose which has made me a very conscious breather. Um, I don't necessarily practice breath work all the time, but I practice conscious breathing all the time. So, you know, I'm constantly taking mm-hmm. deep breaths into my nose and it, it just, it's it's provide. ever since my awakening, it's provided a different sort of sensation. Uh, it almost keeps that euphoria going um, throughout life. So, yeah, it's, it's very strange. Right. Uh, I feel as though I had my experience, my specific experience for a reason. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that a lot of people go into the visionary state and that's why there's so many great films about the visionary states of being, but for whatever reason, that wasn't in the cards for me. So I'm taking a very uh, physical route in terms of uh, diving into this conversation about endogenous DMT and mysticism.
0: Right. Beautiful. I feel like I have said the exact same thing you just said about how a fish doesn't know they're in water. Um, we don't know that we're in this, it, it, you know, like the easy way to say it is air, but it's kind of ethereal energy fields um, that there's levels to like, it's very hard to describe but to me it was and i've seen it um in mushroom ceremonies being in the woods for example it being the field that interconnects everything every everything every surface is being touched by this thing um all the pockets around everything in the room uh is being touched by this thing and it is this ever-present omnipresent force slash field that exists and to me it instantly brought the concept of oneness to mind where it was like it's all one and it was this profound realization because we're being held by it like that air Is what's holding us all and we're all a part of it interconnected by it therefore we're all in this one thing and a lot of times when people have spiritual experiences the concept of oneness becomes apparent to them and um yeah i don't know in a normal kind of lower state of consciousness kind of just baseline consciousness everything seems separate from each other. I'm separate from this table. I'm separate from you. I'm separate from them. Um, Everything is separate. But in this other state, you're like, whoa, I'm a part of all of it. Like it's, it's just a funny paradoxical experience that you can't be translated to someone really, unless they've had that experience. Um, But I totally resonate with that. And, also you had talked about being able to teach someone telepathy well i wonder is that kind of you saying you know envision a color and i'm going to guess the color or what kind of what is the tool to be able to share in like a like a entry-level telepathic experience like how would you maybe introduce someone to that
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to have a second party. So it takes two people. Uh, maybe you could sit across from each other, maybe five feet away. And you have a sender and you have a receiver. So the sender generally should be somewhat well versed in altered states of consciousness. Like I said, meditation or self hypnosis or, you know, being able to quiet the mind, but at the same time, uh, retain a hyper focus when they need to which is uh, an interesting concept when you bring it up to people of of being almost like a a deeply sedated state and hyper-focused at the same time. Most people are either deeply sedated, almost to the point of falling asleep, or they're hyper-focused working on a project, and they're almost in a stress state that's obviously not sedated. So it's about learning how to navigate those two things at once. Um, So like I said, uh, quiet the mind, however, however you do it. And then you have your, Mm -hmm. whatever you want. It doesn't have to be a color. It could be anything. It could be a word. It could be a a fruit, a vegetable, anything. And you ingrain Mm -hmm. that image of whatever that is. And you envision sending that through the air uh, directly into Mm -hmm. the brain of the receiver. And you rapidly Mm -hmm. kind of push that image into somebody. As fast as you can, as vivid as you can. And the more vivid that you get, mm. the greater the effect will be. And usually what we've seen in the receiver, uh, when this takes place effectively, the receiver with the eyes closed uh, tends to go into rapid eye movement. So almost like the what we see during the dream state, mm. right? So the dream state, you know, people go yeah. through REM sleep, rapid eye movement, and we see the same sort of twishing sensation take place uh, when thought transference is is happening. And from the receiver's end, being on, uh, trying on, on both sides, the receiver and you try to just blank your mind like a whiteboard. And uh, whatever mm-hmm. consistently pops up on the whiteboard or in your mind that is going to seem as though it's you're making it up or it's your own thought, it's actually the transference taking place. And it's really that simple, you know, honestly. Wow. So, you know, for any of you right. listeners out there who want to try it out with your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, uh, it's really that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, all you have to do is try uh, get in your mm-hmm. playful state, uh, get into your imagination and uh, get into a deep focus. And, you know, just like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody can, can make a three pointer in basketball their first time, but, I think that if you practice a few times and you really understand uh, the sensations behind when you do have the success, then you'll be able to recognize it better. And probably you'll be able to uh, Mm -hmm. successfully transfer images and thoughts uh, much more easily. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love that. Yeah. Actually, I would like to try that. (laughs) So it sounds like a fun little, uh, experiment to do for sure um also when it comes to the states of all this electricity flowing through your body was there any particular movements calling out to you um i know for myself in certain altered states of consciousness for some reason there are movements i can do to harness the energy and maybe ground it so that it isn't so overwhelming like for one, for example, is raising my hands above my head and, you know, kind of holding my hands like this um, just above my head for a minute or two or five or however long I need to. And it really seems to almost channel some type of cosmic energy and make, make an, an overwhelming experience tolerable. So if I get into a state where it's like, whoa, this is intense and I do this you know, give it a minute or two or five. And as that physical sensation of the challenge of holding your hands above your head for several minutes at a time starts to be present in the body, it almost grounds the energy. And then Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I notice this is yoga. (laughs) Like, is this how yoga was discovered? You know, I kind of ask myself these questions and even same thing with like, um, If I was to put my my feet uh, in full lotus position, which is a yogic posture as well, there's like a challenge that uh, comes from doing that. It kind of hurts. It's kind of uncomfortable. But that grounding sensation makes these altered states uh, and any challenging energies going on within them more tolerable and maybe even navigatable to a much greater extent. Um, Have you Mm -hmm. noticed any like like physical things that came to you through this electricity flowing through the body?
1: Usually I was trying to build it up rather than bring it down. <laughs> so, gotcha. um, you know, I'm not formally training anything yoga or meditation wise. So, you know, I just mm-hmm. realized that maybe, uh, food wise, if you eat a little bit more unhealthy, it, it, it can ground you a little bit. I, that's the only thing that I can mm-hmm. speak on that I can definitely say that, uh, like heavy, heavy, like really heavy, dense food can, like, if you like eating a pizza and a beer or something, that could kind of bring, mm-hmm. bring the situation down a bit. And then you do the opposite, right. you know, and go like on a juice fast, and for whatever reason, it almost feels like the energy rises. So, yeah, I think the yeah. diet and that hydration works. and fasting and things like that can really have a huge impact on um, these sort of this sort of energy. Love it, love it.
0: So I guess jumping over to your film, um, DMT Quest, um, and you said there was a second one coming out as well. Why don't you give us an overview of the first film, and then we'll jump into where the second film will differ and how it will expand on the first.
1: Okay. Yeah, so the first film, um, initially, we just I wanted to go ahead and give the world, I guess, a perspective of the conversation about DMT that had been in progression basically since the discovery of, of, of endogenous DMT, especially, mm-hmm. uh, which took place, I think in the forties or fifties or something of that nature. So, you know, we just wanted to kind of build a, a framework for the, for the average viewer who wasn't super, I guess, knowledgeable about the history of DMT and, you know, go through the progression of what took place in the nineties with the Rick Strassman study And the popularity surge that took place after DMT, The Spirit Molecule came out, which was a great documentary. And then what's been going on since then, the conversation amongst many celebrities and people in pop culture talking about DMT, whether it be in music or in interviews and things of that nature. And then obviously the pineal gland DMT discovery, which took place at the University of Michigan with Jima Borjigin. A lot of people didn't know about Gmo's role in all this. You know, I found it fascinating that you know while Rick Strassman is the most well known for DMT, Jimo uh, was actually really interested in, in this and actually doing a lot of the lab work, the actual lab work uh, at Michigan. And you know, she's a woman that's never taken psychedelics, not even cannabis. Uh, she's not a psycho, not by any means. She's a hard nosed scientist and. I thought that was a, a fascinating aspect of it all. Unfortunately, she didn't want to be in the film, but uh, we might get her in, in, in an extended version of the first episode. I'm, I'm going to reach out to her probably next week uh, because she actually enjoyed the film. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see if we can get her involved and get her perspective as well. And then we went into uh, awesome. the the 2019 discovery published by GMO and John Dean out of Michigan, which basically... I was trying to shed light on the fact that I felt that it was a very important discovery in terms of endogenous DMT, you know, up until that 2019 paper, you know, all the the discussion had been about either the pineal gland producing DMT or the lungs producing DMT. And it was a, it was a very incomplete sort of perspective about endogenous DMT involving tons of speculation. So I wanted to highlight the findings, which were, there were three important ones. Uh, One of them being that in the extracellular fluid of the brain, they found that uh, endogenous DMT levels were comparable to that of serotonin, dopamine, and orpinephrine, which was uh, a very important finding in my eyes because prior to that finding, it was always speculated that we would just have bursts of endogenous DMT during mystical states, but probably there was no DMT being produced during our normal waking hours, which doesn't seem to be the case based on that finding by by John. And then they also found that the two enzymes necessary to synthesize DMT from tryptophan were not found uh, not only in the pineal gland, but also at the choroid plexus, which is the the structure of the brain that produces cerebral spinal fluid. Cerebral spinal fluid uh, basically is found throughout the entire brain playing an important role in in the the cleansing of the brain and the lymphatic system and they found the two enzymes also at the cerebral cortex so basically it, the the scope of the conversation about where dmt is produced expanded massively so it's throughout basically the entire brain it looks like dmt is produced and is produced consistently all the time at levels comparable to commonly studied neurotransmitters so it offers a conversation of, mm-hmm. is reality hallucination? Why are we producing a hallucinatory compound all the time? Uh, if we modulate the levels mm-hmm. of these hallucinatory compounds, does that allow us to tap into other sets of realities rather than them just being deemed as hallucinations, right? Because if we want to get really technical with it... Um, Everything is a hallucination because we have we're secreting hallucinatory compounds yeah. all the time. So you know that that was a conversation that right. we brought up with the whole simulation reality theory and Elon Musk speaking a little bit about that. And then the third item that I felt was you know right. pretty interesting, but maybe not as groundbreaking as those first two discoveries was that uh, DMT was elevated in the visual cortex of uh, dying animals uh, by six hundred percent. So that added some tie-in in terms of the concept of near-death experiences and these mystical states that people have, uh, you know, following uh, you know the death state or physical trauma things like that. So <clears throat> we delved in, into the, those uh, findings of John Dean and Jimmo study, but we also went into uh, the potentiality of the Wim Hof method uh, upregulating endogenous DMT because there's been. Obviously, there's millions of people that have done the breath work. There's thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that have reported mystical states from doing extended, I guess, rounds of the Wim Hof method. And there's been a lot of speculation about Mm. whether this method upregulates endogenous DMT. Based on everything that I've researched, it uh, completely points to something like that taking place. Um, So basically, Mm -hmm. when they study EEG... Uh, from serotoner- serotonergic psychedelics like uh, DMT, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, LSD, psilocybin, uh, there is a very consistent signature in that EEG signal. You see an alpha drop, a surge in gamma, and maybe a little bump in the slower waves. So I wanted to go ahead and compare uh, that electronic signature to the Wim Hof method. We just did a one-person palette study, and we saw a huge jump in gamma. Uh, Following 20 minutes of Wim Hof Method Mm. and the subject that did the Wim Hof Method was able to get into a visionary state. So that offers some sort of periphery evidence. And we presented that in the film. And then we also presented another important aspect that uh, it was an unpublished study done by Stephen Barker at the um, Louisiana State University. I believe this took place in the 80s where uh, they administered LSD to rats and then they took samples of the rat brain and found that LSD upregulated endogenous 5-MeO-DMT by 1,000% and endogenous DMT by 400%, which led him to speculate that we have an endogenous hallucinatory system. And there's the potentiality that some of these compounds work by upregulating that system rather than acting as hallucinogens themselves. So that, that's another intriguing aspect that I felt that, you know, we had to go ahead and present in the film. So it was just like a general overview of the latest research, uh, the potentiality for breathwork being involved in upregulating um, endogenous DMT. And, uh, you know, obviously the, mm-hmm. the part with Barker, I just talked about the LSD and the endogenous hallucinatory system. And then we highlighted the fact that this research of endogenous, uh, the endowasca system that I like to call it, because because it's more complex than just endogenous DMT, right? There's endogenous 5-MeO, and then we also have monamine oxidase inhibitors. So when you talk about ayahuasca, you have DMT and monamine oxidase inhibitors that allows it to have a prolonged state uh, of altered consciousness uh, based on the monamine oxidase inhibitors. And our body actually produces multiple types of that, which we haven't got into yet in terms of the film and things of that nature. But um, yeah, I just wanted to give a brief overview. That was the first film. And in the second film, we're going to be uh, delving into, I guess, um, so we're going to be building upon, so we did a one-person pilot study for the first film. In the second film, we're going to be doing a six-person Wim Hof Method instructor study and a six-person completely naive study, people that don't do breath work at all or meditate. And we're going to have them do... 20 minutes of the mm-hmm. Wim Hof Method breathwork, and we're going to compare the EEGs and the experiences of both groups. So that's uh, right. something that's on deck for the second episode, and uh, we're going to be delving into some of the progressions that have been taking place at the University of Michigan with Nick Linos uh, doing some of his studies regarding um, maybe INMT knockout mice or INMT knockout animals. INMT being the enzyme necessary to synthesize uh, DMT from tryptophan to see if these DMT deficient animals uh, have different electronic signatures in their brain. Um, And uh, there's some other stuff that that's on deck. Uh, We might want to maybe I'm not exactly sure exactly what I can divulge fully on the second episode, but I think that. Uh, it's gonna. Mm. It's it's just building upon you know, and adding a more comprehensive picture as to what's going on. Yep.
0: Hundred percent. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, a few things stuck out there for sure. One of which you saying everything is a hallucination, and after these handful of experiences I had, I started to come to the same thing, and uh, it's almost like you know, the neurochemistry that we have that has kind of been evolutionarily designed to help us procreate is um, more or less delivering to us a version of reality that is conducive of procreation. Now, if we change the neurochemistry, we can live our whole life in a in a number of ways and not procreate and not go down this typical kind of like path that is meant for us and i think a lot of those people end up in monasteries and um, being meditators or being people like what wim hof does and these type of things or people who are changing their neurochemistry on a on a daily basis and it's such a powerful thing to be able to realize that and Um, a quote that comes to mind from, I think his name was, uh, Albert Camus was, I don't do drugs. I am drugs. And it's very, it feels like that. Like once you see that just a little shift of what's flowing through, you know, your brain can create such a dramatic, uh, altering of how the world can be perceived. You can honestly start to perceive the world as things, that we never could have before you could perceive the world like an ant you can perceive the world like a tree you can perceive the world like someone with mental illness even um, through these psychedelic states where you can kind of get this level of empathy um, this empathic nature of being like i can almost tap into how the cat over there is seeing the world Just by studying him in this open state of consciousness, I see that he's laying in the grass, he saw a butterfly go by, you know, like he's really absorbing the sun. Um, It's almost like I can put myself in the cat's perspective when I'm in this altered state of consciousness and it just, yeah, it really is super interesting to me how it's very possible that a ton of what we're experiencing is a is a hallucination. Um, but that also leads me to, and it's a shared hallucination because we're all walking around in this very, th- this thing that we can seem to agree upon, but the thing keeping us agreeing upon it is the fact that we have similar neurochemistry at that particular moment. If you were to walk if someone was to be introduced to a group of people who can all say, you know, this this ball is red and they're on a psychedelic, they'll say that ball is purple and it's like to them they're right, to us it's red, but to them it's purple. Well, who's right? You know, we all have our individual perspective as to what the truth is to us and that's just a really interesting thing um, and it also brings me to the concept of reality being a multifaceted prism or gym, and just depending on which kind of angle you're looking at, you're looking through the gym at, you'll see a different thing. You'll see a different way that the light bends. You'll see a different uh, structure inside. And just because you're looking at looking into a gym from one side and someone's looking into a gym from another side doesn't mean that one side is right and one side is wrong, they're both looking, that you're just like in your current perception of how it looks. Um, so, that's a really interesting topic to me for sure. Have you, like, what is your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, even like a more basic uh, example of that was, um, I think it was maybe two years ago with, uh, you remember that that I don't know if you call it a meme that was going around, but it was a: uh, Is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Right. I mean, right. That was one right. of the clearest examples of so many people viewing reality from different, uh, just viewing reality differently. Right. You had, I don't know yeah. if it was half of the people viewed it one way and half the people the other way, but it, they were looking at it like, how can you not see what I see? Right. And it was so many people right. that had different hallucinations of what that was. So absolutely. And, you know, one of the the concepts that I find intriguing is the fact that, like you said, when we have similar neurochemistry, we, we might be perceiving things similarly hallucina- hallucinatory wise. And, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna had the stone ape theory of evolution and the growth of, uh, I guess, uh, the prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex based on um, psilocybin ingestion of our ancestors. And that's what you know induce the evolutionary leap into humans uh i take a i would say a complementary stance to that and uh, i put up a concept two years ago called the uh the endowasca pole shift theory of evolution where uh you know throughout history there's Mm -hmm. been pole shifts where you know the magnetic north shifts and then that changes the the magnetic field of the earth and based on uh Mm-hmm. Not just Michael Persinger's studies with uh, inducing ultra-weak alternating magnetic fields to induce altered states of consciousness, which, by the way, he did have a theory that indulge- it upregulated endogenous DMT. I feel as though, uh, you know, pole shifts throughout history have uh, altered the Earth's magnetic field to the point of inducing significant changes in the neurochemistry of our ancestors. And... Uh, possibly upregulating DMT over prolonged periods of time, which, you know, obviously we know DMT induces neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, uh, things of that nature, very similar to psilocybin. Mm -hmm. So there might be the potentiality that uh, instead of uh, our ancestors consuming mushrooms to induce significant changes in our brain, that it was the pole shift that was the catalyst for upregulating the endowascus system, to the point of inducing these changes in our brain structure that we're not really you know scientists aren't really looking at it from that perspective and the intriguing thing is that right now uh, we are in the middle of a pretty significant poll shift going on i mean mainstream media has been covering this for years now Mm -hmm. Uh, all you got to do is google a poll shift and you know you'll see it on cnn fox whatever uh they've been talking about this and Mm-hmm. I think this has to do with uh, some of the changes that we're seeing, seeing in society today. I've seen uh, you know, multiple people that I never thought would have had a mystical experience of some sort of spiritual awakening uh, have those experiences in the past couple of years, which is pretty intriguing. And uh, I think the pace mm-hmm. is picking up. So mm-hmm. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I've actually heard about the pole shift as well. And I find it a very intriguing topic. Um, and I do think that that might have happened in the past. And I wonder if that's what wiped out a lot, a lot of these ancient civilizations and stuff like Atlantis and Egypt and uh, the Mayan culture and these type of things. I'm not sure, but something happened where there was a time when we knew so much, um, like, a lot of people believe that there was more advanced technology two thousand years ago than we currently have. <laughs> and it's it's hard to put that into perspective because maybe they didn't have the internet and MacBooks and iPhones, but they had the ability to create things that we still cannot figure out how they were created, whether it be the pyramid or some of the wonders of the world, you know, how did Easter Island happen? We don't know. Like there was some technology at play that we don't understand or we don't know. Um, it's, It's really baffling, but it leads me to appreciate the mystery that is life. You know, we don't really have all the answers. I don't think we ever will. It really is a pure miracle that this is happening. You know, the fact that Earth is sitting right where it needs to sit in the solar system to get just enough sun, not not enough and we and we'd be cold frigid and there'd be no life and too much and we'd be burned up you know it's like how are we sitting in this perfect you know one in a bajillion chance uh placement in which this gets to unfold it's it's almost by design i don't know (laughs) what do you think do you you think there is a a god or or it's chance or, or how do you feel about that?
1: Uh, it's definitely not chance. I'll tell you that. Uh, if it's a God, I could tell you, I don't know what he looks like. Or I don't know what she looks like. Um, yeah. It's uh, everything is too precise uh, to not be by design. That's just my opinion. When I, I look at For everything sure. in, in nature and even things that humans create, right? Cause we have to remember that if we come from, the creator, that everything that we create is is part of that as well, right? So that doesn't separate the MacBook and the iPhones from being part of the, the big template of reality and in the, right. the mind of the creator or the greater creator or whatnot. I don't know how it works. It's very complicated. <laughs> um, right, right, It's, it's amazing. Uh, it's just fun to speculate on it. And um, I think the things that we can point to are anomalies that have taken place and in, in terms of research that's taken place around those things. Like uh, you know, if you look at the University of Virginia and the in-depth research they've done into in concepts like reincarnation, I think that's intriguing, especially when taken from a very mm-hmm. kind of hard-nosed, scientific, rigorous sort of foundational uh research regarding that. Uh you know, there's there's so much out there that is kind of in the in the corners of society that hasn't really been super publicized. But uh, hopefully, in the future, some of those things will get a bigger spotlight. And you know, the bigger the spotlight, the greater the conversation. And I feel it's conversation that changes the world. So, you know, I'd like to see those conversations grow. 100%. I
0: agree. And I think your film is is a wonderful platform for that. It's got a ton of community surrounding it, lots of comments going on uh, on the YouTube page. And, and then um, it will continue the conversation as the second one rolls out. So, again, thank you, man, for your work. It's it's absolutely incredible work. And uh, it was an awesome time speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time.
1: I appreciate you having me on, Matt. It was great uh, conver- conversing with you. I feel the energy. I feel... the uh... You know your connection with yourself and uh, it's so important to be connected with oneself especially to maneuver during these strange times but you know hopefully we can produce more content that can help people understand the experiences that they're going through and you know just continue yeah. to help humanity you know that's the that's the overall goal
0: absolutely all right thanks again brother